Hear the word of the Lord. So after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. And so, so Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and set out to look for David. And this man near the crags of the wild goats. Boy, what, a, what an interesting name, right? It's like crags of the wild goats. Oh, funny. Um, well, it's funny to me. Obviously, to half of you guys, it's funny. So three, he came uh, to the sheep pens along the way, and a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. And David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, this is the day that the Lord has spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. And he said to those men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down, prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at the, the piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. And I understand and recognize that I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs that you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog, a flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And when David had finished saying this, Saul asked, is, is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me of the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. And so David gave his oath to Saul and then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Once again, God, we, we come to you as your people, uh, wanting to, to hear your word and respond to it. And so, Lord, we're just asking for your spirit's help in that. Lord, we, we can't do that without the spirit of God empowering us, God. And so convict, encourage, challenge, heal, 
whatever your word needs to do in our lives, may it have its way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So here's what I, what I hope to do today is God's grace, uh, may he do that for us as a congregation. So this is what I want to do. I want, I want to do my best to try to help us kind of feel uh, what's going on for David. Sometimes when we, especially read a chapter like this, and we see this extraordinary, almost counterintuitive, sort of unnatural act that David does for Saul, it's, it's almost like we, we, we quickly dismiss and say, okay, yeah, of course that would be in the Bible, right? And, and you just don't feel like the, um, the impossibility of what David did here. And just, so I'm just going to try my best to kind of help us feel that a little bit. And so hopefully, by God's grace, if I do that, I, I'm hoping you're going to ask the question, then how? how? How can we step in and live the way that David is kind of showing us in this passage of Scripture? Because I, I do think it's the, the best life. And so in case you're new here and you're jumping in the middle, David is, is running away from Saul. Saul is pursuing after him. Saul is jealous of David. Saul hates David. And so he's trying to kill him. And so, so David is in uh, the wilderness. And so, so we kind of get somewhat of a picture of the terrain that he's living in. Here's some modern day pictures of En Gedi, which is where we find ourselves here in chapter 24. So it's not like this awesome place, you know, it's not like this beautiful wilderness. It's a pretty rough and dangerous area, full of deserts, uh, hard to find food, dealing with wild beasts at all times. And so like, this is, this is not a, a beautiful deal. All right. And so we, we kind of know that, that David's somewhere in the middle of about 10 years of, of doing this and living out in the wilderness because Saul is chasing after him. And so what we see in the first part here of chapter 24 is that, you know, David finds out where, I mean, Saul finds out where David is and his 600 men. Saul gathers 3,000 of his own men and they head to En Gedi to find David and to kill him. And so when they arrive there, Saul is a human being, just like all of us. He's got to go use the restroom, right? He's got to relieve himself or we would say, take a dump, whatever you want to say there. That's kind of what's specifically going on in this passage of scripture. I know I just went and crossed the line there. The, probably the scripture says it a lot better. Relieve himself is a little more proper, but we love to keep it real here. Amen. So, and when we see this happening, we got to like, we got to remember, this is not the only cave in En Gedi, right? I'm saying it's not like, it's, oh, there's only one, or there's not like a, a sign that says the cave pot or the, the latrine, whatever. Like, like there's multiple caves in En Gedi, and Saul chooses the one where David and his men are hiding out. Look what happens here in verse 3. So he has to use the bathroom. So Saul went in to relieve himself, and David and his men were back far back in the cave. So Saul comes in out of a bright sun. You know how this feels. You go into something dark and you can't see anything. So David and his men have been in this darkness. So their eyes are completely adjusted and they see who this guy is. It's like, oh my goodness, what in the world? We've just got a gift given to us. Look what happens. The men see in verse four, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, man, what do you, this is it. Well, I'll give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. This is it. This is the opportunity that this group of men have been praying for, longing for, crying out for, that, that this mess, this misery, and all this living out in the wilderness can come to an end. Here is Saul, 
unarmed, going in to relieve himself, the most vulnerable place you can be. He's a sitting duck without the vigil. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, that, this is it. This is his opportunity. And, and the men, man, they're, they're, they're theologically astute here. They, they get this. Like, they don't, they don't believe in chance. They don't believe in coincidence. They don't believe in luck. They understand that this is God's world and everything that happens in God's world, God is designing it and controlling it. He's in control of all things. So yes, they're right. God has provided for you Saul. It's not by chance that he rolls in this cave. God has directed Saul to go to that cave to use the bathroom. This is your opportunity. This is your chance to end this craziness, David. Step up and do it. And then we see at the end of verse four that David did something very strange. He crept up unnoticed, amongst all the stench possibly, and he cut off a corner of his robe. Now, so we can kind of feel this, right? Because what needs to come from us in response is exactly what the men do, right? What? <laughs> Are you serious? Are you, you, God's put him in your hand and you, you cut his robe off? That's, that's all you do so that we can kind of feel the difficulty and the tension that's going on here, we've got to remind ourselves, look, guys, this is the man that tried to kill David six times. I don't know. It's really hard to get into that, isn't it, a little bit? Like, you know, I, you know, I've got people that don't like me. I get that. I've got people that, you know, they've tried to punch me. They've cussed at me. But I've never in my life had someone try to kill me, Right? Now, some of you in this room have experienced that. Maybe you've had someone to kill you, but most of us in this room have not experienced that kind of enemy, right? And even if you experienced it one time, not six, right? Like, that's next level. Well, one time's next level, amen? But six times, like a whole nother level, I don't even know what I'm talking about. So Saul has tried to kill David six times. He's also tried to kill his best friend, Jonathan, which is Saul's son, which is all whacked up and crazy. Saul has taken David's wife, Michael, and now giving her to another man. A few chapters earlier in chapter 22, Saul goes into a town and slaughters 85 priests and all the men and women and children and infants of this town because they helped David out. David can't go home. He can't go see his wife. He can't just live a peaceful life. And all of this is innocent. He's done nothing wrong. And Saul is bent on chasing and killing him. And just so that we can kind of give a picture of the danger that David feels, he says this in chapter 20 of verse three, when he's talking with Jonathan, when he's you know, in this period of time where he's getting ready to leave him, he says this, yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. This is what's going on. And here's Saul, unarmed, using the bathroom, completely vulnerable. And his men are going, this is our chance to end this chaos. Do it. And then David comes and just cuts the corner of his robe off, and his men go ballistic. I mean, the word that they use for rebuke there is a lot stronger word. It's almost like David had to tear into his guys verbally and say, we are are not going to do this. We are not going to kill the king. We are not 
going to murder him. And so David instead chooses to spare Saul's life. David instead chooses to be merciful to Saul. David instead chooses to treat Saul like he doesn't deserve to be treated. David chooses instead to love his enemy. Now, like I said earlier, I mean, it's sometimes really, really hard for us to feel this. It, it is. I mean, most of us in this room are not running from somebody, you know, we're not running out into the, the wilderness and got a guy chasing and Most of us are not experiencing that. But, but I would say that all of us in this room can resonate or agree with the pull that David feels. All of us can kind of identify with this internal pull to vindicate ourselves. All of us can identify with what David's going on here, this internal pull to, to kind of get revenge, to avenge myself. I'm innocent. I've not done anything wrong. All of us can identify this pull in us to where we want to pay someone back, prove them wrong. We may not be in the same situation that David is dealing with, but all of us can feel the same pool internally that David is feeling. I know for me, this comes out a lot with my kids. And I know sometimes we can kind of dismiss this really quickly, but it does. It's kind of, I, I see it alive in me, especially with my, with my kids. I asked my youngest, Davin, if I had permission to share this. Um, and he said, yes. So, um, so if he said, no, I don't know what I would have done. I guess I'd try to make up a story, but here's what happened when we were, we were laying in bed together at, uh, uh, this week and just kind of reading to him and talking to him. And I don't know about you guys, but there's sometimes when they, when they are, it's evening time, they have a tendency to kind of talk more about their day. You know, I don't know if they're trying to, you know, extend bedtime, probably, you know, saying it's like, now I'll talk so I can stay up later. But uh, so he just talked about his day and we're, we're talking a little bit. And then in the midst of this, he says, you know, I cried today. I said, like, well, what, what now? You, you did what? You cried today? He said, yeah. So what, what happened? He said, well, we're at lunch and, and this boy uh, was kind of like teasing me a little bit about liking girls. And so he kept, you know, doing the little heart signal and pointing to girls at our table and saying, Davin, hearts, Chelsea, whoever it is. And he said, oh, you know, dad, I told him over and over to stop, to stop, and he wouldn't stop. And eventually a lunch lady comes up there, and you know sometimes when an adult comes, it's when the, the waters flow, right? And so she kind of steps in, and then immediately Davin starts crying, you know, just, just weeping. And so, when, you know, as a dad, man, you're like, Argh. like, you know what I'm saying? Like, who's this boy? <laughs> What's his name, right? It's like immediately, like, you just really, like, you feel sorry for him. You, you hurt with him, but there's this, you know, thing in you as a dad, like, man, I, like, let's figure out how we can get back at this kid, right? That's what I'm saying secretly. I'm not saying that to him, right? Because the beautiful thing, and it's so convicting for me sometimes, I mean, not, not sometimes, but all the time, I, my precious son is, is, this is kind of like this childlike faith because then he, then he goes on and tells me, yeah, but you know, this, this kid said he was sorry, didn't mean to hurt my feelings and everything's all good now. And I've forgiven him. And in me, I'm going, I haven't. <laughs> I didn't tell him that. I'm going, well, maybe we can pray that God makes him cry. Amen? Let's bring some justice on that little boy, right? And in some ways, there's some 
rightness to that, but, but I think I, you know what I'm talking about. I wish that was the only place it's present. It's present in a lot of different areas where I'm wanting to be proven right, vindicated, get back at somebody. One of the, I think one of the difficulties of my job, um, there's a lot, but one of them um, is, is that I, I do, like there, there's a, uh, and this is not bad. It's, I think this is part of how God's gifted me. I, I care a lot. I care like about you. I care about what you think. I, I, I do. I know I can be very unhealthy, but there's a part of that of being a pastor. Like if you don't really care for people, then you probably shouldn't be a pastor, right? It's like you're not going to do real well, right? It's just you're going to not have very many people to talk to, so except for yourself, amen? So, uh, and one of the most difficult things sometimes for me is, is when people leave our church, really is. And, and I'm not saying that in case you're thinking about leaving, so don't, don't get freaked out. I'm just trying to be real honest and open with you guys of some stuff that goes on in my interior world. Now, I mean, about a little over a year ago, our, our brother-in-law, and if he listens to this, he does sometimes listen to this, I love you, man, and I'll talk to you more about this, so this is not a, I don't know why I'm looking up in the air, but that's kind of weird. <laughs> it's not like he's here, right? Um, but they came to our church for about two years and, um, you know, loved having them here. They were just a great presence, great friendship I have with him. Uh, when they had their youngest, Maeve, it just got, became really difficult for them to, to get connected and feel part. And, and so we went and grabbed lunch or I forgot how we had this conversation. I might've just been over to his house and stuff like that. And, and he just said, Hey, look, this is kind of where my wife and I are, man, we're just really struggling connecting. It's nothing against you. It's nothing against your church. And, you know, with the young kids, so we, we just, we probably need to find another church and uh, someone that's a little bit closer. And I mean, we love you, love what you're doing there and love your church, but we just need to find uh, someplace to, that we can kind of better connect and plug in. And so you know, when I heard that, you know, obviously what I say outwardly, um, which I did say is, yeah, I totally understand. Get that. Man, my blessings are upon you. And I hope you guys find a place where you can connect and really plug in. But secretly, guys, internally, <laughs> I'm hoping they don't like it. <laughs> I, I'm serious. I, I'm, I'm hoping they hate it. I was hoping, you know, a year down the road, they come back going, man, we miss this church. This church is so awesome. We're so sorry we left. We're such idiots, right? <laughs> that hasn't happened. <laughs> but, but what is that? right? I'm wanting to be vindicated. I'm wanting to be proven right. I'm wanting to be seen as like, oh yeah, you got it. You've got it, Lyle. You see, all of us feel this pull that David is feeling. All of us do. So who is it for you? Who do you want to get back? Who do you want to prove wrong? Right? Who comes to your mind when I say that? Who do you want to show, hey, look at me now? Who do you secretly hope something bad happens to? I, I don't feel like I'm the only one here, right? A little confessional time for me, but I don't think I'm the only one here. I think all of us identify with the pool that's going on in David. You see, Jesus comes on the scene and like 
He gives us a new way of living. He, he really does. And, and like we live in a society and a culture as well as we have a, have a, a bent in our own heart that, that wants to define life how we want to live it. Like this is what's best, to get revenge, to pay someone back, to prove that I'm right, to get vindicated. That's what's going to bring life. And then, then Jesus comes on the scene and says stuff like this, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And when we hear that, we're going, whoa, that's, that's stupid. That's dumb. That's just getting walked all over. That, that's not life. No, this is life. And Jesus is coming, no, 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 that's not life. That's all jacked up and messed up. This is what's real. This is what's normal. This is what's going to bring life-giving, flourishing to you is when you love your enemies. Not just those that are nice to you, but those who persecute you, who slander you, who make fun of you, who undermine you. Not when you just like bless those that are kind. You know, those that persecute you. That's what life is. And so sometimes we, when we read this, this is like seems way impossible. And I want to say, yes, it is. That's why we all need a savior and we all need the spirit of God to empower us to step into this new life. But this is the best life to live. In spite of how you feel. In spite of what you think comes natural. This is the best life. And so we see this, guys, look put on display here in chapter 24 in a, in a beautiful, convicting way. And I think in this chapter 24, it kind of gives us, like, how can I live into this? Like, if this, is, if this is where life is to be found, that I love my enemies, that I, that I bless those who persecute me, that I, that I don't after vindication, I'm not after revenge, I'm not after trying to prove people wrong, that there's a better way of living than how? How do I step into this? Well, first of all, the Spirit of God needs to dwell in you in power just like it dwelt in David. You've got you to understand that all that we see happening in David's life here in 1 Samuel all begins back in, what, chapter 13, 16, somewhere. You know where it was. Right now, I'm forgetting where it was. But there's a moment when the anointing of, of God came upon David to be king, that in that moment, the Spirit of God came on him in power. And everything that we see happening in David's life is a product of the spirit dwelling in him. So that, that, is, that is available to us. That's available to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. When we repent of our sins and respond in repentance and faith, that doesn't happen by evolving into it. It doesn't happen because you grew up in a family that were Christians or Catholic or, or Methodist or Presbyterian. It doesn't happen because, you know, you sort of believe in God. No, there comes a time when you're confronted with your rebellion, when you're confronted with your life saying, look, I'm, I'm done trying to live life like I want to, I want Jesus. And in that moment, the Spirit of God comes on you in power in order to give you the strength to live in a new way that Jesus is laying before us. Yes, not perfectly. No, no, not perfectly. But he's empowered you to step in, just like we see with David. So like how? What, what, what do you see here, Lau? Well, I'll give you two words, and the two words are this. Trust, mercy. Trust, mercy. Trust, mercy. First one, trust. I'm going to go through this a little quick because I, I feel like this is the whole of David, and I've already talked a little bit about this. But sometimes when you, when you think about trust, it seems really abstract, doesn't it? Like trust, like that seems so abstract. That another way of thinking about trust is active faith. And so if it's active faith, then what am I seeing? I'm saying like, what am I visibly seeing when I'm trusting in the Lord? Well, here in David, you see, first of all, he obeys. 
he submits. His trust is made visible by his obedience to the word. So look, look, remember this, three times. Interesting, three times in this chapter, David says this, or men say this, David says it, and Saul says it. He says this, God put me in your hands. God has put Saul into your hands. This was God's plan. This was God's providence. God directed Saul into that cave to use the bathroom, all right? Three times that is spoken of in this chapter and affirmed. That is what's true. The why behind why God did that is where it gets a little fuzzy because his men said what? His men said, hey, God's provided this so you can do whatever you want to him. The heart of David, because we know what's going on in our own heart is saying what? Hey, this is your chance to get back. You deserve this, man, and goodness gracious. He's created a lot of misery for you, man. This is a chance. Bring justice, do this, come on. He deserves this, man. You can make a logical, rational argument that you should kill him, do this. That's what's going on in David's heart because that's what will be going on in our hearts. But what does God say? You see, this was a test for David to determine whose words are gonna be dominant in his life. The men's words, who said, do whatever you want to with him. His words, where he could kind of have a rational argument and feel like this is the right thing to do. Or God's words. That's why when he cuts off the corner of the robe, he feels conviction. Because when he cuts off that corner of the road, he is disobeying what God says to do to the king. Because in essence, what he's doing is symbolically taking the kingdom for himself. And God said, whoa, 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 uh-uh. No, no, that's not your role. You can't do whatever you wish to Saul because Saul doesn't belong to you. He belongs to me. The only thing you can do to Saul is what I command you to do. And what I've commanded you to do is give honor and respect to that position. I've not removed him yet from that position. He's still king. And your responsibility is to honor and respect that position. And so this is a test for David to see, is the word of God going to be dominant in his life or is men's word going to be dominant in his life? Or is his own words going to be dominant in his life? No, the word of God is going to be dominant in David's life. He trusted. And that trust is seen in his obedience. I trust Therefore, I obey. Secondly, you see it here in this passage of scripture. His trust is seen and he waits. He waits. And look what he says there in verse 12 and 15 in this kind of speech that he gives to to King Saul. He says, may the Lord judge. May the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand is not going to touch you. Verse 15, may the May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from from your hand. David is leaving the justice to God. He's not taking justice in his own hands. He's waiting. May God do this. May God uphold. May God vindicate. May God judge. The number one command in all of scripture is do not be afraid Number two, pushing up to number one would be wait on the Lord. It is all over the Bible. David says this in Psalm 27, wait for the Lord, be strong, take heart, wait for the Lord. In Psalm 37, in the context of of the anxiety that comes to us when we see evil prospering, God says this, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Solomon, his son, writes this in Proverbs 20, verse 22. Do not say, I will pay you back. I'll get revenge. 
I'll prove you wrong. I'll vindicate myself. No, wait. Wait. Wait for the Lord and he will deliver you. David gave himself to God, the God who justifies rightly, the God who judges rightly. He did not return evil for evil. He didn't take things in his own hands and create a shortcut to the throne. No, he didn't want to grasp the throne until God gave it to him. He was willing to wait. His trust was not only seen in his obedience to the word of God, but it's also in his waiting. God is the one who avenges. God is the one who vindicates. God is the one who will judge. I trust, therefore I wait. That's the first one, trust. Second one, mercy. If, if, the, if Samuel, first and second Samuel, gives us a record of what's going on on the outside of David, the Psalms give us a record on what's going on the inside of David. You follow me? So if the books of Samuel gives us kind of like this record of what's going on on the outside for David, the book of Psalms are showing us what's going on in the inside of David. And Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 is ones that David penned during this moment, during this period of time. I encourage you to go home and read both those Psalms. But here's what's fascinating to me in those, psalm, in those two Psalms. Both of them start off with a cry for mercy. Both of them do. Look what he says here in chapter 57, verse one. Have mercy on me, O God. Have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Psalm 142, verse one. I cry aloud to you, the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. And I'm just going, mercy? That's the first thing that comes to David's mind when he's in this midst of like being chased out in the wilderness where someone's trying to kill him and he's innocent, mercy? Because mercy means what? It means that I'm gonna get something that I don't deserve. Like if I'm writing this Psalm, this is what I'm saying first. David gets there, but here's what I'm saying. Hello, I'm doing all good things here. Like I'm doing everything right. Hello, come on. Show up, do something. I'm owed this, right? I deserve this. Take care of this, this menace here that's driving me out into the wilderness. Do something, act. I mean, David eventually gets there in these Psalms, but I find it fascinating that he starts off with mercy. That whatever good that God does for me, I don't deserve it. It's mercy. God, give me mercy. And when that reality gets deep in you, like it got into David, then it makes sense for you to be merciful to those that hate you. Are you following me? David cries out for mercy because he recognizes that everything he gets from God is undeserved. God's been merciful to me. That gets in my DNA, so to speak. And then therefore it makes sense for me to be merciful to someone else. So I want to suggest to you that if you have difficulty being merciful, then you do not get how merciful God has been to you. Or more directly, if you want to get vindicated, if you want to be proven right, if you want to get revenge, if you want to get payback, 
then you do not recognize how merciful God has been toward you. Because when that reality gets deep in your heart and soul, then the only thing, natural, whatever you want to call it, the most thing that makes sense is that you extend mercy to no matter who it is. And there's, there are parables in the Gospels that there, there are certain ones that you read and you go, man, I don't want to be that guy, right? You know what I'm You just want to kind of read it in third person and think, oh, that's for somebody else, right? And, and one of those is in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus describes a story of, of a guy that owns, owes a king, owes a king like close to, like, from our perspective, be like a million dollars, this crazy debt, and he doesn't have the capacity to pay it back. I mean, no way. I mean, he's just like, it's like having a school loan, amen, right? It's like, it doesn't matter what I do, man. I could be a doctor for crying out loud. I'm never getting out of this debt. You, you follow me? Some of you know what I'm talking about. Like, it's just massive way. Well, this, this king graciously and mercifully forgives him of all of his debt and sets him free. And then Jesus goes on and says the very next day, he goes out and finds somebody that owes him 20 bucks and chokes him and says, pay up now. And he couldn't pay, so he threw him in jail. Because that's an indictment on us when we're not merciful to all people, no matter what they've done to you. Because yeah, that... I hear you. I hear it. But what about this? Like, you don't know this person. You don't know this situation. I don't. You're exactly right. I don't. And I'm not trying to make light of the pain that someone may have caused you. I'm not. I'm just trying to say, look, there's, there's a way that God wants us to live that seems somewhat unnatural. And if I truly understand what Romans 5 says, that I was an enemy of God, that I was an enemy of him, that I hated God, but while I was an enemy, not while I was coming to my senses and realized that I was an enemy and I didn't want to be that anymore, right? That's not what's going on there. While I was an enemy, God sent Jesus. He sent Jesus for me. He sent Jesus for you. And when that gets in me, what oozes out is mercy. Mercy. David had the spirit of God alive and powerful in him so that in the moment when he could have slain Saul, he trusted, he obeyed the word of God, he waited, and he was merciful because God had been merciful to him. So this is how I want to end today. I just want to, I just want to encourage us in some ways here, hopefully encourage in, in, a, in a good, maybe convicting way. But if you're, if you're not a Christian here today, my, my encouragement for you is this, is that sometimes, man, we live in life that's so busy and so crazy that we never stop and reflect and think. And I just, I just want to encourage you to reflect and think about your life. That if, if you're, you're living for revenge, if you're living to you know, prove somebody wrong, if you're you're living to kind of vindicate yourself. I just, I just want to encourage you to stop and say, okay, like, how is that working for you? Like, how's that settling in your interior world? What, what's going on? How, how, how's that 
working. And I just want to encourage you to think and reflect upon the life that Jesus lays before us, the one that created all things, brought you into existence, and says, hey, this is the best life. This is the life that's flourishing, that maybe, maybe I've got it all wrong. That revenge won't get me happiness. Proving that person wrong won't bring me satisfaction. Maybe I've got it all wrong. Maybe Jesus has it right. If you're Christian here, I want to kind of push you just a little bit, all right? As most of you know, we kind of live in what we call a post-Christian society, and I'm not going to dive in fully about that, but basically all that kind of means is this, is that we live in a, in a culture and in a time where orthodox Christian belief is no longer embraced or even looked at as a good thing. Uh, it's, it's actually looked at as, as, as a bad thing to some extent, a harmful thing. And, and I think there is, I'm not trying to be an alarmist here, but I think there is a day, and maybe some of you have already experienced this to where you're going to be, you know, um, probably not up for a promotion. You may not even get a job because of some of your beliefs about marriage, about gender, about God, about salvation. You're going to get marginalized and we're going to face a lot of persecution. I, I feel like that's kind of in our future and some of you are already experiencing that even today. And so in the midst of this, where we're, we're getting more marginalized, so to speak, how are we to respond? What's the invitation that God has given to us as a body of believers? Some of us may respond by saying, okay, man, we just gotta, we gotta get the right president in there, the right Congress in there, the right governor in there, get the right Supreme Court justice in there. And if we can kind of legislate morality, we can get back to our glory days back in the 50s, and, or maybe not the 60s, but the, the 50s when it was awesome and amazing. And, or maybe the day when we had the moral majority and whatever the heck that thing was. Uh, but here's it's like, okay, like, I'm not saying that that's not something we need to pray for. Like, I think there's a place for us to pray for godly leadership and godly character and wisdom in that, those kind of offices. But I think there's more. Some of us may think, well, the best thing we can do is just kind of like, let's just kind of huddle up, create our own little society, kind of protect ourselves, you know, get into the world and just be quiet, be calm, be peaceful. Don't raise any kind of concerns, you know, just, just kind of keep the peace and sort of just kind of, you know, be in the background. And, and there is a place, I would say, to living peaceful lives and quiet lives. I, I, nothing wrong with that. I think there is a place for that. But I think God wants more. Some of us may look at it like this when we see bumper stickers on our cars that have a, a Darwin fish getting eaten up by the truth. And if you've got one of these in the back of your car, I'm Sorry, probably making you feel really bad. Please come back, all right? Because I'll really be crushed if you don't, right? And it's like, <laughs> thanks for laughing. But, but I, like, what is this? What's going on here? Like, I, I've never met a guy or a young lady who came to faith in Jesus because they looked at this. I think there's something going on where we want to be proven right. We want to be vindicated. As Thomas Merton says, we're searching for an argument strong enough to prove us right. Why? Why? God has already vindicated you in Jesus. You don't need that. You see, I I think God is 
calling his people to love like God, to have a, a radical display of love toward those who will slander us, who will marginalize us, who will persecute us. That's what he's calling his body to. You see, radical Christianity is not, I mean, there's, there's a part in this, but sometimes we get so confused about this. Radical Christianity is not this, you know, this highly emotional, zealed guy or girl that's on cloud one million, whatever it is, constantly amazing high for Jesus Christ. Like, that's just unsustainable. I mean, it just is. That's not real Christianity. Maybe you were kind of fed that in your youth group or in your college ministry, and then you got into the world and said, so like, man, I don't even know what was going on there, but I can't sustain this. Like, you can't. And there's a place for that. There's a place for zeal, excitement, passion, but I don't think there's any place in Scripture where it says that's how you got to be that all the time. Radical Christianity is not just like, you know, your family going overseas and, you know, living with an unbreached people group and trying to minister the gospel. Yeah, that, that's, there's a place for that, and we need to be doing that. Radical Christianity isn't like, hey, I'm going to drive my car until it gets to the 500,000 miles so that I can make sure I can give all my money away. Yeah, there's a place for that also, but I'm, I'm not sure if that's necessarily quote-unquote radical Christianity. What I want to bring before us is what Jesus called regular Christianity. It's pretty radical because we need the Spirit of God to do this, but the Sermon on the Mount is regular Christianity. That's what it means to be a Christian. And the Spirit of God dwells in you to empower you to step into that. And so I just want to end with reading just a little portion of it. And I know, man, all, all, what we'll do with these verses is like, well, well, what about, does that mean we need to be pacifists? Does that mean we should never have war? Like, what does it mean that I should not never, you know, give to people that bar? Should I, everybody that asked me, should I give them? Like, I don't want to answer all those questions for you. I just want the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and convict you where you need to be convicted. Because if you're anything like me, man, I, I need to hear this. I need to, I need to hear, I need to love my enemies and quit trying to pray for their secret failure and glad when someone is in pain, right? Because I do think God's provided a beautiful, unique opportunity in our society and culture to love in a way that's radical and that will change people's lives because we don't have to be right. This is what Jesus says, verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not res resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, then go two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are you not even the tax collectors? They're doing this. And if, if you greet only those, your brothers, what, what are you doing more than other people? Don't even pagans do this? Let's pray.